Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Hi, I'm Scott Hahn, and I'd like to invite you personally to join me and Breadbox Media on August 24th in New Oxford, Pennsylvania. For a day of spiritual renewal, I'll be presenting three talks, one on St. Joseph, one on the Sacrament of Matrimony, and another one on the Holy Eucharist. Learn more and register at breadboxmedia.com forward slash PA conference. I hope to see you there. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. This is Setting the Record Straight, Chuck Coughlin on BreadboxMedia.com. This podcast is part of a series in which we reflect upon the 13th century, some say the greatest of centuries, and the great king from that century, and one of the great saints from that century, the same person, St. Louis, King of France. There's much to admire in the performance of the Catholic Church during this period and much to admire in the performance of the king. However, there was a recent debate broadcast by the BBC worldwide, and over 87% of the audience rejected the notion that the Catholic Church is a force for good in the world. Although the defenders of the Church were confronted by two masters of rhetoric, there's little doubt that the vote reflected a shift in attitudes toward the Catholic faith. Catholics were regarded as nice but naive, but today we're increasingly regarded as evil. Teaching the faith and defending Catholic ethics has become much more difficult. So it's vital that media such as Breadbox Media, and specifically setting the record straight, remind everyone of the extent to which the Catholic faith is a force for good in the world. You will know them by the fruits. When I say, St. Louis, what do you think of? I imagine that most Americans think of the city of St. Louis. Do you ever wonder how many people know who St. Louis was? Well, he was one of the great gifts of the Catholic Church to the world, especially to the 13th century. And he is honored by many names, Louisiana and other names, that reflect the French period, in which French colonists occupied many areas of North America before the British arrived. The French got along marvelously with the Indians, the British did not. The British tried to exterminate them. We have the French and Indian War, which the French and the Indians allied against the, against the British colonists. Well, we all know the French and Indians lost, and in the Great Expulsion, which was a trail of tears, the British exterminated a large civilization of French colonists in eastern Canada, the Arcadians, who became the Cajuns. Since we mainly learned the British-oriented history, that was different than the British. St. Louis, the city. Let's talk about St. Louis, the city. It was the point of origin for Lewis and Clark's great exploration. 
commissioned by the brilliant, imaginative, and creative Thomas Jefferson when he was president. A lot of people don't know this, and I'm going to do a program on it. The Missouri River had been thoroughly explored for generations by the French Catholic colonists in America, by the Chateau family, actually several generations of the Chateau family, who were the founders of the city of St. Louis. And it was they who traded with the Indians all up and down the Missouri River to the extent that the famous expedition of Lewis and Clark found, with a single exception, them all to be extremely friendly. Well, they had been very used to people of European origin coming up to their riverside villages and landing and trading with them. They looked forward to it. They were overjoyed. The arrival of the traders met a great celebration for the indigenous people. Now, this is not to demean Lewis and Clark because... They did something the Chateaus never did. They went beyond the headwaters of the Missouri River. And when they realized that this was not the Northwest Passage, this was not the river or the waterway with which they could cross a continent and emerge somewhere around Seattle, Washington. So, at the top of the Missouri River, they, they ran out of waterways deep enough to paddle in. So what did they do? What they did is they decided to walk. And they walked from the headwaters of the Missouri River all the way to the Pacific Ocean. But let's get back to St. Louis. When he was crowned, he was only 12 years old, following the death of his father, although his mother, Blanche of Castile, ruled the kingdom until he reached maturity. During Louis's childhood, Blanche dealt with the opposition of rebellious vassals and put an end to the Albigensian Crusades. As king... Louis IX's actions were inspired by Catholic values. He was opposed and suppressed blasphemy, gambling, interest-bearing loans, and prostitution. He even bought some relics of Jesus Christ. He managed to create an architectural masterpiece in which to house these relics. The Holy Chapel, known in France as the Santa Chapelle. Louis IX was also a reformer. And he was a key person in developing fresh royal justice in which the king is the supreme judge to whom anyone is able to appeal to seek the amendment of a judgment. He banned the ordeal of trial by fire. That's the practice of torturing people to determine innocence or guilt. He tried to prevent private wars that were plaguing the country. And significantly, he introduced the presumption of innocence to criminal procedure. Certainly one of the greatest innovations of history into the criminal justice system, saving many innocents from being punished. To enforce the correct application of this new legal system, Louis IX created provosts and bailiffs to apply his Catholic principles in the courtroom. According to his vow, which he made after a serious illness and confirmed after a miraculous cure, Louis IX took an active part in the Seventh and Eighth Crusade. In the Eighth Crusade, he died from dysentery. All his life, he had been a devout Catholic, an exemplary Catholic. Needless to say, he's the only canonized king of France. All around the world, numerous places are named after him, not just St. Louis. Let's go in close. Let's focus in closely on moments in the life of St. Louis. Let's go to the moment of his death. For three weeks, King Louis IX of France lay dying in his tent in the shadow of the old Carthaginian wall. The fading 56-year-old monarch may have felt some sorrow over his own military record. He was a supremely rational mind, 
a careful logistician. Despite that, he always led from the front. He was an immensely courageous soldier, a brave man. Despite all that, and his wonderful intellect, this devout Catholic king had failed in two crusades. On his face, however, there was no sign of regret, rather a quiet peace that reflected his understanding that for the Catholic, failure meant only one thing. There was only one failure. That was to lose one's soul. With that in mind, King Louis sent for his son, Prince Philip. He had written a letter to his son in his own hand. Louis charged the next king of France, first to set his heart on love of God and to be ready to suffer every kind of torment rather than commit a mortal sin, to avail himself of the sacraments, to unburden his heart to his confessor, to attend to the needs of the poor, to avoid war with other Catholic princes, to surround himself with wise men, to honor his father and mother, and never to tolerate blasphemy in his presence. When the letter had been read, the king was laid on a bed covered with ashes. The ashes were spread in the form of a cross. Folding his arms across his chest, the most Catholic king of France called upon his country's patrons, Saint-Denis and Saint-Gervierve, and awaited deliverance from this veil of tears. But this was not the first time the king had lay dying. Some three decades earlier, on campaign against the rebellious French barons, when he was only 28 years old, Louis had contracted an infection and fever from which he actually never fully recovered. So two years later, the fever returned with a vengeance. The people of Paris feared Louis would die, and they filled the city's churches in a perpetual vigil for his recovery. The king lay in his bed motionless, near death. Two chambermaids argued over whether he had already passed. Then there was a voice. He said something. They were startled. He asked in a clear voice for a cross. When it was brought to him, he grasped it in his hands and swore an oath. If God would cure him, he would lead an army to liberate the Holy Land if God would see him back to health. Within days, he was on his feet, and preparations for the king's crusade were underway. He had worn the crown of France for 18 years. He had governed with charity, love and justice, caring, attention to details. He'd create a system where he could hear face-to-face -face the complaints of his most humble citizens. His intention to lead an army into the Holy Land and confront the Muslims made his mother collapse into tears and wailing. She had lost her husband on crusade and her three other sons planned to join their brother. She, with the help of a local bishop, persuaded Louis that a vow when made while sick and in fear of death is not binding. He was not bound to this vow. Well, the medieval historian Matthew Paris recorded in detail what happened next. Louis, now in good health, renounced the old vow, which he knew he had made when consumed by the fear of death. He had been in terror. 
King St. Louis stepped forward, took the bishop's cross in his hand, and what did he do? He grasped the cross as he had before on his deathbed and swore a new vow. He would lead an army to free the Holy Land from the Muslim tyranny. This is a small sample. This was the great king of France, Louis IX, St. Louis. Now, a century and a half before his reign, Pope Urban II, in declaring the First Crusade, it called for an end to the wars within Catholicdom, which served man's interest in favor of a war, a united war that served God's interests. St. Louis certainly regarded himself as the heir to this principle. But in practice, his success was limited to France, and even their political rivalries slowed his progress in the most fundamental ways among them securing a seaport from which to embark. There were two great seaports, Marseille and Montpellier were the obvious choices, but neither was in the king's control. His response to the problem was sort of ingenious. He converted the unlikely backwater of Aiguemont into a fully functional major port. Well, that was the name of the place. It means dead waters. A village named Deadwaters for its brackish lake and shortage of fresh water hardly seemed promising. So what did King Louis have in mind? It looked like a crazy idea. France had two very well-situated ports, run by very independent-minded people who denied him use of them. St. Louis did not have control over France's two great seaports. How was he to set out with his crusaders for the Holy Land? Those independently-minded Frenchmen who were controlling these ports were denying their king access and use of the port. So he acquired this place called Deadwater. Didn't look promising, but he was going to convert it into a great seaport. How was he going to do that? So Louis did this. He built some long canals to connect the town's lake with an outer harbor on the Mediterranean. Small craft were loaded by the city walls. These were also built by St. Louis. And then sent down the canals to the sea where their cargo was transferred to larger ships. Detailed records of the preparations for the Crusades reveal Louis's heads for logistics, an art that had not been given serious attention during the early Crusades. He wisely arranged for his fleet to rendezvous at a friendly port, Cyprus, where he had supplies and provisions staged in advance of his arrival. Another measure of the king's commitment to the Crusades is revealed in its cost, six times his annual budget for domestic affairs. From where did the money come? Well, from the barons who joined him. Well, the barons who joined him paid their own way, not a few borrowing money from the king. Nearly two-thirds of the sum came from the Diocese of France and the balance from the king's own fortune. He paid for the other third. Shipping, supplies, provisions, and money, however, were of no use without crusaders, and Louis faced a major recruiting challenge. As luck would have it, he had called for a crusade when the situation looked quite bleak. A century and a half of crusading with little more than a coastline to show for it meant that many Catholics in Western Europe were starting to doubt the cause. Yet, 
Lewis did assemble an army of 15,000, five times the standing army of the, in the Holy Land. By encouraging the idea, one he certainly shared, that a number of factors had recently converged to offer hope to a new crusade. So what were these factors? Well, the various Muslim powers were squabbling and quarreling. The West enjoyed naval superiority in the Mediterranean. There was also a dark horse, Mongols sweeping across the Middle East from the other direction, coming up against the right flank of the Muslims. Lewis believed that the Mongols could be allies in fighting Islam. Perhaps, he considered, he might even persuade the Mongols to join the Catholic Church. The king toured France, and his crowd-thrilling public appearances instilled in the people of France confidence that victory was coming. The crowning event, suitably, was an elaborate ceremony to dedicate the Saint-Japelle, the Holy Chapel. The magnificently beautiful oratory he had built to house the passion relics, including the crown of thorns. Under a man of lesser devotion and charisma, the army might never have been raised, but Lewis's vigorous piety made him the perfect crusader. Led as it was by this most Catholic king, so carefully had it been planned, so well had it been funded, that all France believed this expedition would succeed. It was a three-week voyage to Cyprus. No harm came to his fleet in that time. But once there, the king had his first taste of the confused politics of the crusader states in the eastern Mediterranean, established after the first crusade. Those were the county of Edessa, the principality of Antioch, the county of Tripoli, and especially the kingdom of Jerusalem. There was also an Armenian kingdom. The French developed the habit of calling this area the overseas, so he was encountering the convoluted politics of the Utumer, the overseas. Once there, Louis reprimanded the master of the Templars at Acre for attempting on his own authority to negotiate a peace with the Sultan of Egypt. To the Western knight who thought in terms of good Catholics and evil Muslims, it must have been difficult to accept that alliances with one sect against another had helped to keep the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem alive. After eight months on the island, Lewis's army, equipped with a small landing craft they had built over the winter, set sail for Egypt in the middle of May. The year was 1249. Why Egypt and not Jerusalem? In the middle of the 13th century, the center of Islamic power was Cairo, where Sultan Ayub ruled. Until the Egyptian army was neutralized, there could be no serious hope of any stable and secure kingdom in Jerusalem. Before Lewis could even attempt to attack Cairo, he had two choices, Alexandria or Damieta. Lewis chose the latter. His decision, according to the correspondence of one of his knights, was influenced by a storm that blew the fleet off course. His biographer, Jean of Joinville, reported that the Catholics learned that Ayub had devoted the greater of his forces to the defense of Alexandria, so Danieta seemed the better choice. Indeed, the initial assault, though hard fought, took only one day. On Saturday morning, July 5th, after assisting at Mass and confessing their sins, Lewis's knights hit the beach, 
Not even waiting for their horses, they leapt from their barges into the waist-deep water and waded ashore. Lewis, himself eager to join the fray, jumped in when the water was up to his neck. Met by the Sultan's forces, the French knights fought hand-to-hand -hand in the tide and on the sand for hours and hours. Lewis always in the thick of the fight. In time, the Christians carried the day, and any Muslims not lying dead on the beach fled to seek safety within the walls of Damieta, defended, they hoped, by Bedouin tribesmen. What they found was different, a terrified garrison and a civilian population who were now evacuating the city. Except for the handful of Catholics who lived there, Damieta was abandoned. By Sunday afternoon, the king's banner flew over the palace of the sultan. It had been just two days. Forty-eight hours. The French had taken a city that thirty years before had held crusaders at bay for a year. Within a few weeks, the mosque was consecrated as a Catholic cathedral. A bishop was installed. The military orders established houses, and Venetians set up markets. Queen Marguerite moved into the Sultan's former palace. For a brief summer, Damieta had become the capital of the overseas of the Uttaramea. But now St. Louis had to wait for two events. First was the arrival of reinforcements under the command of Louis's brother, Alphonse, and the subsiding of the waters of the Nile from their annual flood. Louis stayed with his army and camped outside the city and saw to the camp's defenses, for the sultan had offered Bedouin raiders one gold bazant for each French head. It wasn't easy. Heat, flies, and fever plagued the camp. The barons distracted themselves with elaborate feasts, while the lower ranks of soldiers made use of the services of prostitutes, sometimes very close to the king's own pavilion. Remember that King Louis was greatly opposed to prostitution. Months after the campaign, Louis discharged these men who acted so faithlessly when the French army was in such need of God's grace. The barons of Utmer suggested taking Alexandria. Well, this would give the Catholics the control of the Mediterranean coast of Egypt. But the king's brother, Robert of Etois, argued for Cairo, declaring, If you want to kill a serpent, crush its head. The image must have appealed to Louis, who chose Cairo but he was badly in need of a decent intelligence officer. Damieta, as the crusaders soon learned, was separated from Cairo by 100 miles of desert, laced with a bewildering network of canals and Nile tributaries. His brother Alphonse arrived at the end of October with reinforcements, and Louis launched the campaign for Cairo at the beginning of Advent. The event was a complex combined arms operation. You have to realize what they were up against. This was an enormous effort. River barges burdened with huge siege engines and supplies fought currents and contrary winds. Engineers dammed canals and built bridges. So what did the foot soldiers and mounted horsemen do? They marched overland through the desert sands. One thing that a lot of people don't realize is that travelers on the deserts often move more after dark than during the hot midday hours as depicted in movies. They tend to sleep in the day and move at night. Mansurah, 45 miles southwest of Dameta, was the first objective. On December 21st, the Catholics drew close to Mansurah and met with the Sultan's army drawn up for battle on the opposite side of a wide canal. While the Catholics worked to build a causeway, Egyptian engineers dug out the canal on the opposite bank and harassed the French with Greek fire. Maybe you remember about Greek fire. 
It was a flaming chemical that was projected onto battleships during sea battles. The Byzantines in Constantinople had used it, and evidently now, in the 1200s, King Louis had use of it. It was a top-secret weapon that often determined the outcome of naval battles, because it could continue burning while floating on the water, and it was responsible for many key Byzantine military victories, and famously saved Constantinople twice from two Arab sieges. So exactly what was this chemical mix? What's the big secret? I hate to tell you this, we really don't know. It's a subject still of a lot of debate and speculation. We really still don't know for sure. That was a guarded state secret. The best we can figure out, it was a combination of pine resin, naphtha, quicklime, calcium phosphide, sulfur, maybe some niter. The Byzantines used pressurized nozzles to project the liquid onto the enemy vessels. So that's Greek fire. Sort of a super weapon of the day. But remember, we were talking about uh, King Louis and his crusaders with their barges and siege engines going through the networks of canals and tributary rivers, the army and the mounted horsemen marching through the sands. After six weeks without any progress, Louis sent a party to find a ford downstream. A place to cross was found, though hardly a ford. For much of the crossing, the horses had to swim. Louis' brother, Robert, was the first to cross with the master of the temple and his 290 knights. Robert had strict orders not to engage the enemies until the whole army could be drawn up on the opposite side. But perhaps he wanted to exploit the element of surprise. Robert led an attack against the council of the better-disciplined Templar master. Well, most of the Saracens were still asleep or just waking up. The sudden attack caught him totally by surprise. The leader was in his bathtub, getting his gray beard dyed with henna. A great slaughter ensued, but Robert was not content with the success of one risk. Intoxicated with his success, he again disobeyed the king and ignored the Templar master and led his force in pursuit of the Saracens inside the city walls of Mansura. Now that turned out to be a big mistake. The tables turned. French knights, glorious on their war horses in the open field, were suddenly trapped in narrow streets, contending with blind quarters, and there were rooftop archers. Robert's army was destroyed by arrows and ambushes, and Robert himself was killed. Well, this is another example of defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. The Catholics lost. Only five Templars escaped with their lives. Well, a little further on, St. Louis's army had at last taken the opposite bank, but at a very tragic price. Weeping at the news at the death of his brother, the king refused to retreat to Damieta. When the Egyptian counterattack came, Louis Calvary swept the Saracens back into the town. The Muslims regrouped. By the way, Saracens and Muslims are the same thing. The Muslims regrouped again and charged this time driving the king back to the banks of the canal where he was saved. There he was saved by his archers, storming across the hastily built pontoon bridge. The French Catholics repelled attack after attack, but now three critical combat multipliers, time, climate, and geography, were on the side of the Muslims. 
Throughout Lent, the situation deteriorated. By dragging ships overland, the Egyptian army blockaded crusader supplies from Damietta. One time, they captured 80 Christian vessels and slaughtered every man aboard. Lack of fresh food and poor sanitation brought the standard crusader plagues, dysentery, scurvy. This can be pretty terrible. Joanville, the historian, described the effect of scurvy. It ended up with the gums having to be cut away from the, by the army's barbers. Barbers were often surgeons in those days. The gums had become so infected with gangrene that, that they had to be amputated. When at last King Louis decided to retreat to Dameta, he did so under constant harassment from Saracen skirmishers. Much of the army, including Louis, was too sick to march, but the king refused to abandon his soldiers in spite of his constant need to dismount from his horse because of his dysentery. When his brother Charles complained that he was slowing their progress, Louis replied, Count of Anjou, if I'm a drag on you, get rid of me, but I will never rid myself of my people. What followed was a tragic end to a sad story. Philippe of, Montfort, Philippe of Montfort, one of the better barons of the Crusader area, had nearly negotiated free passage out of Egypt for the French army in exchange for the surrender of Demeta. But before the deal could be sealed, a French sergeant, perhaps a traitor, perhaps paid by the Saracens, persuaded the Christians at the Battle of Hadescourt to surrender or risk the death of the king. Before Louis understood what was happening, the army had surrendered. Every man was taken captive, including Louis, who was led off in chains. For the next seven days, the Muslims beheaded 300 men a day, leaving their corpses to rot in the sun. Back in Dometa, the courageous Queen Marguerite, only three days before this, she had given birth to a son, John Tristan. She found herself negotiating with the ship owners. From, they were from Genoa, and they wanted to sail for home. She bribed them to stay using her own fortune, and this saved Damietta and the lives of many French prisoners. For that city was the only bargaining chip left of King Louis, as he negotiated his ransom and that of his army. He was so sick with dysentery that the bones of his back showed through his skin, but he kept a good face. He was always cheerful all throughout his imprisonment, even when threatened with torture. He wasn't treated badly by the sultan, who sent him new clothes and Arab doctors with whom Louis was impressed. After a month in captivity, the king was released on payment of half the debt to secure the other half, which would be paid when the king reached Acre, and that would be partly from Knights of the Templar funds. The Saracens insisted on holding as hostage one of the king's brothers, Louis named Charles. But the Moslems insisted on Alphonse, who they suspected that Louis loved far better. So Louis was in Acre for almost four years, and he governed what remained of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem and negotiated the release of all his soldiers. Though the Egyptians proved faithless and murdered the sick Christians left behind in Damieta, in time all of Louis's knights were released, and a 15-year truce with Egypt set in. But then, 1253, the sultan from Aleppo led a massacre in the town of Sidon, killing 2,000 Christians. The king marched overland with his army to Sidon, where he sought to the burial of the dead. 
His men complained at having to handle the stinking corpses. So, with his own hands, the king set about this corporal work of mercy, before joining the priests in their prayers for the dead. At Sidon, Lewis heard the news of his mother's death. It reinforced his opinion that he needed to return to France. And the barons of Outremer agreed. He'd done all that he could during the four years in the Holy Land. He'd rebuilt the defenses of Acre, Jaffa, and Sidon. But all agreed that Lewis needed to return to France to inspire more men to take the cross, to take up the cross of the crusade. However, his own excellence worked against him. Because when he got back to France, there was a common opinion that of a man as devout and upright as King Louis IX had failed and even suffered the indignity of capture, that the prospects for one more crusade seemed hopeless. It was hard to take. He feared that the capture and imprisonment of himself, a Catholic king, had brought confusion to Catholicism. After the crusade, Louis set aside the joys of life, small and great, in which he had once delighted so much. His biographer, Joinville, described a man evermore set on matters eternal. He turned to a greater personal asceticism. This was a man who once loved a good party or a stirring theological discussion with his friend Thomas Aquinas. He now devoted himself more than ever to making France a place where Catholic holiness would blossom, would prosper. He labored for peace and justice with such drive that he became the most sought-af arbiter in Europe. He was a good negotiator, a great diplomat. In negotiating peace with England, his advisors believe he was far too generous to Henry III. He outlawed private war and judicial combat. Then he coined the realm's first gold coin in centuries. Of course, he was decorated with crusader imagery. He gave very generously to the poor, feeding them from his own table, washed their feet frequently. He supported the Catholic Church, building monasteries and leper hospitals. He inspired and encouraged large-scale displays of public piety, participating in no fewer than nine translations of saints' relics. In contemporary's opinion, he was the pinnacle of the king's honor. What did G.K. Chesterton say about him? the noblest knight of the Middle Ages. His record as king justifies the praise. So ardently and vigorously did he pursue peace that from 1243 until 34 years after his death, there were no serious challenges to the authority of the French throne. During that same period, both England and Germany were troubled by rebellions, constant rebellions, civil wars. King Louis united France in Languedoc. This was the very area that a generation before had been the hotbed of the Albanesian heresy. He understood that the peace that began in the heart of each Catholic woman and each Catholic man would spread throughout the Catholic doom. He led his people with a concern for the small and the poor and to the rights of every person that is rare in any age. King St. Louis IX, who would be a treasure of any age, and was characteristic of the 13th century.
This is Setting the Record Straight. Chuck Coughlin on BreadboxMedia.com. This is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tours Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.